Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. We're really getting into now the streaming arms race. This is looking at that and saying we can really build a nice niche for ourselves. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The dollar is the dominant concept in the planet. I think the acquisition is a natural progression of what Microsoft can do with this technology going forward. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts are covering worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at the sales lift from General Dynamics' Gulfstream lineup. Plus, Procter & Gamble was reaping the benefits from the pandemic recovery and work-from-home trends. But first, we want to welcome back a guest we oh, haven't boy. spoken to in a long time, Eric Balchunas, Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst. Eric, have you been? I'm back. He's uh, back. And it's nice to be back. I miss you guys. We miss you too. Um, so l let's talk about Bitcoin meets mutual funds meets ETFs. <laughs> Where are we? Here's the state of the race. The first step of approval is probably going to happen in the next week or two. And the first step meaning they're going to probably approve Bitcoin futures ETFs. Mm. So this wouldn't be like a real spot Bitcoin tracker like GLD is to gold. Um, and the reason for that is because Gary Gensler of the SEC just doesn't really feel comfortable with the 1933 Act, which those are filed under. They have less investor protections than the 40 Act. But Bitcoin isn't a security, and the 40 Act, you can only file a fund that holds securities. Thus, the only way to appease Gensler's uh, desire to have a 40 Act fund is to have Bitcoin futures. The downside to that is that futures, as you know, Alex, from covering commodities, um, you know, they expire. So you have to roll in the next month, and that rolling can be costly. And so we're anticipating maybe 10 to 15 percent a year of roll costs. Now, you would pay that if you did it on your own. It's not like, you know, an extra uh, hidden uh, nefarious fee, but that's just what happens when you hold futures. That's, I think that Bitcoin's so can be so potent in returns. I think people will still look to use it and buy it. Um, it might become a trading tool for some, but it won't be nearly the big hit that a physically backed Bitcoin ETF will be. So, again, we say a 75% chance that they will start rolling out over the next couple of weeks. Um, I leave a 25% chance because the SEC is 
pulled the football away, uh, Lucy style, many times. <laughs> but um, in this case, because Jensler has signaled so much that he is okay with the 40 act, we're pretty confident. But I am factoring in that this is an unusual situation and a seven-year story. What is the demand out there for these ETF Bitcoins? It just it seems to me like it would be phenomenal. And this is something that the U.S. needs to get really on board with. Yeah, but it, it will be there will be demand. But like, for example, like up in Canada, they have a Bitcoin futures ETF and they have physical. And the Bitcoin futures one has less than 1% of the assets of the physically backed ones. Now, here, there is no physically backed. So if the Bitcoin futures is the only game in town for, say, a year, right, um, I would see a couple billion probably going into it. That's mm. our guess, which is pretty good. I mean, that's billions of dollars. But relative to, say, the size of Bitcoin, that's less than 1% of the market cap. Um, it's also less than 1% of annual ETF flows every year. So uh, maybe it'll be higher, maybe lower. I've got some side bets going with other analysts who <laughs> some feel it will be even less than $4 billion. I think I'm underestimating, if anything. But the thing is, advisors in particular, who these ETFs are name, namely for, they don't really like derivatives. And so mm. they, they may hold out and continue to hold out for the real deal or go to Coinbase or something and just buy it directly. Now there are services that help advisors just buy Bitcoin and crypto directly. So those other ways that you know it's become easier to buy crypto are also a factor in our sort of underestimating of that uh, $4 billion. That said, the crypto community is clearly excited, but they get excited for everything. So they're trying, they're pumped up. <laughs> they think this is going to be a big catalyst event, but sure, it's possible course. it's a sell the news kind of event, to, to be honest. Um, what about roll costs? Yeah. I mean, again, we're, we're saying 10 to 20% a year um, is probably a, a safe estimate. As more money comes into the is that a lot? market. Is that a lot? Yeah. I mean, I think it's healthy. Okay. I mean, like there's other uh, commodities, the roll cost is very minimal, like gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some that are crazy like VIX. <laughs> VIX could be 40% a year. Wow. Oil has sometimes been 40. So I'd put this in the medium category, uh, 10 to 20%. But it's possible the roll costs um, are worse when people are optimistic about Bitcoin, um, because then obviously the curve would slope up. But the idea here that you would uh, be buying more expensive futures out would mean people are bullish on Bitcoin, mm. which means your fund is up. So perhaps the roll cost won't be as annoying when you're up a lot anyway, versus when you're down and then you're hit with roll costs, which can sometimes happen in oil. Talk to us about mm. uh, a Bitcoin mutual fund. I thought something was launched recently. Did that get much traction? No. And this is also why we are kind of a little, uh, you know, uh, pessimistic about the possible the assets for these. The Bitcoin Futures Mutual Fund launched uh, two and a half months ago from ProFunds, and it only has $15 million dollars. I mean, that is really low. Now, I don't know. The mutual fund wrapper is just out of vogue. People don't want it things in mutual funds anymore. So we're trying to suss out, like, whether it's the mutual fund or the futures. We think it's a little of both, but probably more the mutual fund. Um, But that was a bad sign. That said, the fact that Gensler approved a futures mutual fund, because it's under the 40 Act, gave us the confidence we had to make our 75% prediction, because... Honestly, an ETF and a mutual fund are virtually the same thing. One just trades on an exchange. Thus, the fact that he approved that is why we think he will have no problem or they will have no problem approving uh, the same thing in an ETF wrapper. 
But yeah, that's not that was that was a bad sign. Uh, Eric, thanks a lot. It was really good to hear your voice. Eric Balchunas, Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst. Coming up on the program, rising costs creep into supermarket prices. More coming up. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing you in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's talk about inflation. We are seeing it all over the place in this economy, particularly in agricultural products. So the question is, to what extent are we seeing it in the supermarket aisles? Let's bring in Charles Allen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Retail Analyst. So, Charles, what are we seeing from some of the big uh, supermarket chains are they? How well are they passing along some of the the price increases that the you know the Procter and Gamble's uh, of the uh, world are, are charging? Yeah, good afternoon, Paul. I mean, I think we're just sort of seeing this coming at, in really in slow motion at the moment. That's the sort of the best way to describe it. We can see the producer prices to which you alluded going up quite a lot, and you know some of them up more than thirty percent. Things like oils. And then you can see it in the producer price. The producer price input prices are there. And then it's beginning to come through in their output prices. But at least in Europe, I mean, actual consumer price inflation in food remains quite low and, you know, sort of low single digits. But I think we all know that it's going to pick up and that these price increases we've seen in the system are going to come through and we're going to start seeing it picking up to towards mid-single mid digit. Um, is this a different, what regime were we in before? Like how price competitive were supermarkets before all of this? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, at least in Europe and I think in the US as well, actually, you know, we've had for at least 10 years the continuing rise of the limited assortment discounters. And they really put pressure to keep, for everyone to keep prices down. So I think, you know, supermarkets um, have really worked to regain their price competitive position against lower price rivals, you know. And so big companies like Carrefour in France or Tesco in the UK have worked to bring their prices down. And, I mean, there's one reason why... the there's little being said about it because having reestablished your reputation for low prices, you don't want to say out loud we're going to put them up. It's interesting. I mean, I'm, you know, my knowledge of the supermarket business is just super low margins for the retailers, and I guess they make it up on volume, as as, as they say here. So, is there? I'm surprised the supermarkets haven't taken this opportunity to try to push through some more price increases because, boy, we see it every other part of the economy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I'm sure they will when the time comes, you know, because if, you know, if the price of oil has gone up, then everyone has to pass it on. But uh, but you don't want to be the first one doing it because customers will notice, you know, if suddenly you're, you know, 5% more expensive than someone else, then people will notice. And because you've got this sort of overwhelming presence of Aldi, Lidl, and in some countries, Netto, you know, to keep prices down, you just, the people are just waiting for it to be a necessity to happen. And then, I'm, as I say, I'm sure we will see prices going up. But 
no supermarket wants to be the one that's saying, um, oh, we're definitely going to put prices yeah. up. And they don't want to be visible in that. They don't want to be the first mover, basically. Um, which company is best poised to either manage this margin squeeze or have more pricing power? You know, I mean, the pricing power is, is pretty limited because of the, you know, continuing competition. I think, you know, the where we will see um, people doing better is if your overall volume increase is the, you know, the actual number of packets and everything you're putting through your business is going up, as it probably is at Tesco at the moment. Um, in the U.S., it's going up at quite a few retailers, as it might be going up at Carrefour in France. Then you're in a better position with your suppliers. Your suppliers will like you more because of that, and therefore you can manage the price increases better. Charles, I know uh, a couple of weeks ago, the story was there weren't enough truck drivers in the UK to get the fuel from the ports to where it needs to go. Is that also an issue for consumer products getting to supermarkets? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it is obviously the UK is worse affected. The, but I mean, right through the supply chain of non-food, um, you know, there's a shortage of containers or the containers are in the wrong place. Um so goods, you know, are coming through more slowly than they should be. And obviously, as we're approaching the peak Christmas season, um, people need the the items to be in store quite quickly. So, yeah, it is a problem in the UK. Anecdotally, if you walk into a supermarket, there are many, many more blank spaces than you'd normally expect. Crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. Um, okay, talking about consolidation, and I feel like private equity also wants to get into this space. Yeah, I mean, it, it is certainly in the UK. I mean, I think the um, what, what essentially the, the, the supermarket story in most countries in Western Europe is now, you know, revenue growth is going to be pretty low for a few years. You've had a really big bump up because of COVID, and it's a question of, really, can we maintain that higher level of revenue? Um, and that's still a bit up in the air. So, you know, we're looking at single-digit revenue growth for a lot of these companies. But on the other hand, they're quite cash generative. They're, you know, they're not investing as much as they used to, and they throw off cash. So public markets haven't particularly appreciated that story. They want revenue growth and things like that. But if you're private equity, maybe you're not quite so fussed about the revenue growth, but you like the amount of cash that's coming off. Here in the States, Charles, as you well know, some of the big box retailers are actually huge in the grocery business. I'm thinking, thinking Walmart here. Talk to us. How is it in the UK and Europe? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that the very big boxes have... Um, are not necessarily the ones that have been growing fastest. And, I mean, realistically, and I think this to a degree applies to Walmart, although they've fought back more, is, you know, the big box hypermarket or supercenter or whatever you want to call it was the big victim of the Internet. Is, you know, the idea was you had the food to attract people into the store and then you had a big selection of low-priced general merchandise. Um, but... The internet have an even bigger selection of often even lower price general merchandise. Mm. So the rationale of that business model has sort of faded. Um, but in the food part, yeah, bigger boxes are probably slightly better now because there's a bit more space. I mean, even nowadays, people don't necessarily want to be all huddled up together, sort of looking through the fruit 
that. <laughs> All right, Charles, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Charles Allen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Retail Analyst based in London. All right, coming up on the program, it's the outlook for Procter & Gamble amid commodity and freight headwinds. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts, covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. So we just hit on food companies, supermarkets, and inflation. So let's go to the everyday stuff like your toothbrush and your toothpaste, your dental floss, Procter & Gamble, uh, and what they have to do when it comes to their margins and the input pressures they're seeing. We're welcomed now by Deborah Aiken, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Luxury Goods and Home Care Analyst. We also want to talk luxury, but first, let's go to P&G. How are they doing with all these supplies? supply chain rising cost issues? I think what, what they're doing is they're managing very well and um, how they're doing that is that they've become, despite being the huge company that they are globally, they certainly are not the size that they were five years ago. Um, you know, when we think about them now, they're five different divisions 
and 10 categories, global categories overall. So they're really honed in. And then if we think about them over the last 10 years, they've had two sets of five-year, 10 billion cost savings programs, and that all works in their favour. And even now they're looking at reducing things like media spend and being so focused on it um, hugely in the next few years. So there are still savings to be had and organic growth to build in. So very, very well. How about, talk to us about the inflation, because that's kind of the topic du jour uh, recently. Uh, What's the company saying about their costs and the ability of P&G to pass along those costs throughout the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the line? Absolutely. Um, So we saw at the um, the June report, um, so they're they're due to report on the 19th of October. We saw in the June report um, when they came through that they were seeing some teens increase in some of their input costs between even April and July when they when they last really talked openly to the market about those numbers. And how are they dealing with that? Um, some costs are more stable than others and given the breadth and the depth of their portfolio and the fact that they're number one or number two brands and really more innovative than they ever were, some of that is passed on in mix, some of it is ability to raise pricing and some of it is through cost savings. So it will pressure margin um, for all of these companies. But when you compare against the biggest and the best brands in class, then uh, we would say that the uh, pressure that they receive is less than elsewhere. Just to give you a little um, n- a number that's come through for, for this week, and more recently, IRI data released at the 3rd of October, um, in that data, the P&G in the US, we can see they're really managing inflationary pressures with some prices raised 3 to 4% on the month versus a year ago. So they're passing that through. And that diverse portfolio is allowing that to happen. Um, do they have any more levers to pull, though? You mentioned that they were going through all these cost-saving programs. If things get tighter, do they have more levers? Absolutely. So they've given, when we think about them last year, they returned $19 billion to shareholders in the form of $8 billion dividend, $11 billion share repurchase. And what they've estimated for this year is, again, maintenance, uh, maintenance of dividend at $8 billion, but 7 to $9 billion on the uh, return via share buyback. So that does give them some leeway anyway when they're ordinarily expecting um, COGS to be about $2 billion higher. And on top of that, they've done things like raise media budget, but then they're saying they're looking at the budget overall to come through with annual savings and efficiencies to really offset higher in inflationary pressures. So, for example, $2 billion of media efficiency savings to come through again, as they did in the last five years, and take that as an opportunity for the next few years. All right, Deb, let's um, kind of switch our focus a little bit and talk uh, luxury since we've got you on the line. Um, talk to us just about how the luxury category performed from a sales perspective throughout the pandemic and now that we are you know, presumably on a global scale to varying degrees coming out on the other side of this pandemic. So if we look at what happened in 2020, on average, we saw a 17% revenue decline versus 2019, and we saw a 38% EPS decline in 2020 versus 2019. As we headed through 2021, story openings, more people into shopping malls, a lot more transition online, and great flexibility from so many companies on individualbrands.com as well as third-party marketplaces that helped full recovery for some companies by Q1, other companies by Q2 of this year. We had peak valuation by the end of June, beginning of July, and we then started to 
Here the rumours come in through and it affects in different categories outside of luxury on common prosperity out of um, Beijing. Mm. And what that did for the sector overall was to see the average share price momentum by July of over 60% down to 30%. So it gave back or there was profit taking on half of that. What we started to see now um, is is that we're, we're picking up and we start to see earnings coming through. Great analysis, Deborah. Thank you so much. Deborah Aiken, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Luxury Goods and Home Care Analyst. All right, coming up on the program, long-range jets lift General Dynamics aerospace sales, and regional banks could see a revenue boon from a steeper yield curve. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing you in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. One part of this reflation narrative that we've been seeing is this steeper yield curve. Now, it's not crazy steep, but it is getting (laughs) steeper. And one beneficiary of that is most definitely going to be the regional banks, where you wind up borrowing money for the lower rate, and then you lend it out for the higher rate in the back end of the curve. Want to get more here from Herman Chan, a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Regional Banks Analyst. All right, Herman, just tell me how good it could be for the regional banks. Yeah, sure. So um, just a quick step back, definitely a steeper yield curve pretends um, a better share price for the regionals as the steeper yield curve in the higher 10-year treasury is reflected in, in, in earnings multiples for, for banks and regionals in particular that are more um, susceptible to, to rate swings. Uh, what's helpful for the banks is that while typically earnings will will improve by uh, Fed rate cuts. Uh, but this time around, because the banks have much more liquidity on their balance sheets because of all this deposit inflows from the Fed's QE mm-hmm. and and um, stimulus from the government that, that continues to help uh, the consumers, banks are flush with liquidity and can invest that liquidity in the form of securities. So we've written in our research about a potential 5 to 7% growth in pre-tax provision net revenue for a few of our banks that are more liquid on their balance sheet. Banks like Signature and M&T have have better upside, we believe, when, when they could potentially invest their excess liquidity into the securities market. Talk to us about loan demand out there. You mentioned all the liquidity that's in the marketplace. Does anybody need a loan these days? <laughs> it's tough because... You have some competing factors, right? You have, for for the regionals, it's much more commercial-oriented. So you have the Paycheck Protection Program. Those loans are, are being forgiven and are coming off the balance sheet. And then you've got um, a weak demand from commercial borrowers. Um, that is due to a couple factors, difficulty in hiring and, and the supply chain issues that, that everybody continues to, to grapple with. So you have muted loan demand, you have the PPP forgiveness, and it's tough for the banks to really deliver loan growth with those, those competing factors. And you've got an open capital markets where the larger corporate borrowers can just go to the capital markets and, and pay off their loans. So it's tough for, for the regional banks to grow. Um, you've seen some pockets of growth from 
areas like residential mortgage and auto lending for the consumers. But overall, it's been tough sledding. Do you think that that turns at some point? Like we're going to get to a quarter where we start to see some nice loan expansion or is this going to be the hard slog? It's going to be a tough slog. Mm. You've you've heard a bunch of uh, the companies that I cover talking about 2022 being a bit more difficult given the supply chain issues, especially mm. with the banks that lend to auto dealers and the chip chip shortage. That's going to take a while to 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 deal through and muddle through. So it's going to be tough sledding at least over into the new year in our view. But uh, but uh, the the hope is that we get through those issues and then the banks could, could potentially grow in the back half of next year. You're right. Your title's regional bank analyst. Are there certain regions of the country today that are performing better than others? Are there? Are you making any kind of call there? Yeah, I, I, I guess uh, I would say that there, there's still strong growth in areas like in Silicon Valley, where we cover a couple of banks, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, and also Signature Bank that lends to the venture capital and private equity firms that mm. that business continues to do really well and you've seen um, you know a lot of dry powder put into work and you've seen a lot of m a activities with with technology companies and, and life sciences companies so all of those factors continues to help uh, deliver loan growth for a couple of these banks that, that we cover that are more levered to what's going on on the west coast which areas and which banks are the worst set up for this? Yeah, uh, I, I think the banks that have a bit more commercial real estate exposure, mm-hmm. because the pandemic, while while we're we're closer to the other side, there's still some lingering issues, especially with commercial real estate uh, from borrowers in office or hotels. Um, Though the banks that that have more exposure to New York City CRE, like an MNT, probably ha- has a, a longer recovery period. Um, and then banks that lend to auto dealers that I mentioned before. So those are banks like Comerica, banks like Huntington, and also MNT that have a bit more exposure to 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 the the weakness in the supply chain with respect to auto. All right, Herman, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Uh, Herman Chan joining us, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Regional Banks Analyst. All right, Alex, I live near a private airport in New Jersey, and I can tell you the private jet (laughs) business is hopping. I mean, these things are buzzing over uh, day and night. Let's get a sense of what it means for one of the big players, uh, General Dynamics. They got the Gulf Stream. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, Doug Rothick, our Bloomberg Intelligence Aerospace Analyst. So again, if I were going to be in the market, Doug, I think I might be looking at some Gulf Streams. Talk to us about the importance of Gulf Stream to this General Dynamics story. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, You mentioned how you've seen an an uptick in traffic, and that's absolutely the case. If we look at uh, FAA BizJet traffic, I mean, it returned to 2019 levels already by spring of 2021. So so the the group collectively is already in a growth mode, and the broader demand backdrop is, is really pretty positive. And if you contrast that with the commercial passenger traffic, if we look at TSA numbers, they're still down 20, 25% from 2019. So obviously for Gulfstream and their peers, uh, again, the demand has is, is really been quite impressive, uh, the snapback there. And so they introduced two new aircraft last week, the G400 and G800, and we think this puts them on a pretty good path to get to about $10 billion of revenue in the aerospace division by 2023. Um, and that's, you know, about 20% 
of their revenue right now, but you know could grow pretty pretty substantially over the coming years and offers a pretty good offset to some potential moderation in the defense business. So before we get to defense, so weirdly, business travel is totally there. It's just in the private jet space. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's just not on the commercial airlines, but it's it's back. Um, and I wonder how much more that could actually grow and then help the bottom line. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one key driver of uh, BizJet demand is uh, companies rolling out new models. And so we've seen a pretty consistent cadence over the past number of years with General Dynamics every two years or so rolling out new products. And so ultimately that stokes um, obviously, it stokes competition as well as demand. Uh, we've seen their backlog grow pretty impressively, impressively in the first half of the year, a 1.5 book to bill. Um, their competitors are obviously ramping up uh, new programs as well. So the competitive landscape is is getting um, uh, obviously more challenging over the coming years. But obviously, everybody's fighting for that that large cabin market share where you can get aircraft that uh, you know costs north of 70 million dollars. All right, so if I do go out and shop for my G7 or G8, that's the kind of money I'm talking about. Who am I competing against for these planes? Who's buying these things? This is obviously ultra high net, high net worth individuals that need to be somewhere very fast. I mean, these, uh, these ultra long-range aircraft can fly halfway around the world without refueling. And so um, we've seen a pretty impressive uh, demand shift, if you will, from commercial aviation, where obviously everything going on with um, uh, the pandemic and uh, restrictions around the world has shifted really um, to the business aviation side. Um, and again, U.S. domestic TSA, I'm sorry, FAA BizJet traffic is, is already in a growth mode, and, and I think that'll continue for for at least a number of years now. I mean, we're still uh, at least a few years away from returning to 2019 levels on a commercial commercial passenger level, and, and we've already exceeded that on, on BizJet basis. So, Here's a question for you. It, as we sort of shift to greener things, <laughs> planes, et cetera, how mm-hmm. does a – what does General Dynamics do with that? Like, do they have to make new planes or engines? Like, do they not have to worry about it because rich people are going to go buy trees? Like, how, how does this happen? So I wouldn't say they wouldn't have to worry about it. The the sector collectively is researching and investing in um, you know new fuels, um, sustainable fuels for commercial air travel. You know broadly speaking, um, and obviously on a very small scale, there's investments and and research being done on you know electric type of uh, short travel vehicles. I, I still think we're very long ways away from being that. A significant part of the market. Um, so I think if you're if you're on this, you know, five year, maybe ten year horizon. I mean, General Dynamics is basically laying their product portfolio for at least a decade here with the recent recent unveiling of these of these aircraft. Who does Gulfstream compete against? What's kind of the market breakdown here of the, of the players? Yeah. Um, so so if you go back about ten years ago, Gulfstream basically held. Uh, you know, 90 plus percent of the market for these ultra long range aircraft with their G650, which was by far their highest margin program. Uh, Bombardier has has rolled out and has started production of their competing G uh, Global 7500. And so over the next few years, collectively, they'll probably have about 80 percent of the market share. Um, Dassault competes with them as well, although a bit smaller. But, um, you know, we think that the new programs from General Dynamics will give their Gulfstream business a really good fighting chance in, in the market share battle against Bombardier. This is Doug being like, and then I test drive them. Yes. 
<laughs> and like see Kevin, how I feel. Just like Kevin Tynan. You know, Kevin yeah, gets yeah, a new exactly. car every couple of weeks. Exactly. Okay. Doug gets his private jet. All right, Doug. Thanks so much for <laughs> joining us. Doug Rothick, our Bloomberg Intelligence Aerospace Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.